Uh, the title of our sermon today is Idol Factories, and uh, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So let me go ahead and read that, uh, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll get started. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first, his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, or Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, thing, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only, shall, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Amen. All right, so I want to start off with two different quotes, and the first quote may be not so well known, the second quote I think very well known. They're from the same person, John Calvin. It's John, Cal- John Calvin who said, every one of us from the mother's womb are experts in inventing idols. Right, every single person. We're experts in inventing idols. But he also said the human heart is an idol factory. Right? So it is just something that we are plagued with, something that we do. And it's something also that we ought to stay away from. I think Calvin's point is very important because idolatry points to a heart problem. We actually have a problem. You know, a lot of us... We don't like to acknowledge, especially outside of Christ, before we came to know Christ, we don't like to point out that we are sinful people. We think that we're good people, right? And I know in my own life, at one point, I thought I was pretty good, right? But then I came to the realization of what the gospel tells me, that I have a problem, and it's at my core. I'm just not a, I'm not a good person with just, who has some bad problems sometimes or has some bad tendencies sometimes. Um, no, I'm, I'm a bad person who exercises what my heart wants. And that is the problem with humanity, is humanity has a heart problem. And the problem with the human heart is that it's corrupted by sin and it's capable of producing all kinds of wicked idols to worship and to follow after. That's, that's the problem we all have. And even after we come to Christ, it's something that we still have to fight against or else we really wouldn't be talking about it today, but we are. So case in point here is uh, in this chapter, in chapter 8, we see Israel um, falling back into idolatrous worship again. They have just last... Last, uh, last uh, excuse me, last Sunday, I, I preached about their repentance. It was so beautiful, wasn't it? It was so beautiful. God restored them. We saw all that, and now we're talking about them falling back into 
idolatry. Um, let me go over a little bit of last week just so that you can get a sense of where they were before uh, you determine where they're at now here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I want to read verses 3 through 4 from chapter 7. It says here that Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. That was the passage, one of the passages that we focused on last week. We were like, praise God, hallelujah, this is genuine repentance because we see how the Lord responds to it. It's beautiful. The land is at peace. The people are at peace. And then here we are the very next Sunday. Boom. Right back into idol worship. See, Israel, they come back to the Lord after 20 years or over 20 years of living in rebellion um, against the Lord. They're living for idols for over 20 years. They finally realize their sin. They come back. And, and during this whole time that they're uh, living in idolatrous worship, they're separated from the Ark of the Covenant uh, because they, they cannot be near them. Seventy of their men died from handling the Ark of the Covenant. They sent it away, just like the pagan nations did before them. When they had the Ark of the Covenant, they sent it away. So they, in a sense, sent God away. It's a picture of us whenever we're living in, when we're living an idolatrous lifestyle. What do we do? We send God away. We try to run away from church. We try to run away from his people. We try to set down our Bible. We try to distance ourselves from the Lord. That's exactly what they were doing. They sent the Ark of the Covenant away. And, and they, but they, at the same time, lamented over the Lord. That's what happens to us as well, right? We separate ourselves from God, at least we try to, but at the same time, we're never happy. We're, there's a part of us that's missing. We're lamenting over the fact that we do not have that walk with Christ, right? That, that presence, that physical walk with Christ. So we, we are lamenting over that, and, and this is what Israel was going, through, was going through. Talk about lost time. But after Israel truly repents of their sin, again, we see God provide protection for them from the Philistines. He restores the possession of their land. And at the end of chapter 7, there's this sense of peace and comfort. It closes and it's like, wow, that's the way it's supposed to be. Let me tell you, that's the way it's going to be one day on that last day, right? When we have this perfect union with God, but... We're not, gonna, we're not celebrating that here in chapter 8. It's, it's the exact opposite. And let me tell you, it did not take long, and it never does. That's the problem. That's our heart problem. It never takes long. How many of you have listened to a great sermon here? And there have been a lot of great sermons, right? <laughs> How many of you have listened to a great sermon here, and as soon as you, and, and you're convicted, you're cut to the heart, you're like, I got to change this. And before you leave the parking lot, you sin again in the same way, right? It, it, it doesn't take long. Like, it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and say, wow, they're just stiff-necked people. Why don't they get it? We're the same way. It doesn't take long. That's why there are, there are warnings and there are commands in the New Testament to put on Christ, 
to set your minds on the things of God, to be ready, right? Like we, we have to engage ourselves in our walk of faith because it just doesn't happen automatically. And that's the sense that we're getting here. It's like they have this peace with God at the end of chapter 7. Then all of a sudden, they go back to their old ways in chapter 8. And we see that they start worshiping another idol. So as we look at our passage today, this is what I want to do with you. I want to identify what idolatry is. And I also want to talk about why the human heart is so prone to it. And I want to point out how God deals with it um, amongst his people. And then after we do that, we have some applications, some quick applications as to what we can do as God's people to guard ourselves from idolatry. So let's, let's start looking at our passage. First of all, I want us to notice that we see Samuel's sons and how they are living a rebellious lifestyle, Right. This is starting to look familiar because we had just talked about Eli and his sons. Now we have Samuel and his sons, and they do not walk in his ways. You see, as Samuel served the nation of Israel, he served the nation of Israel as judge, which basically meant like a governor or, or a ruler in a sense, not king, but somebody who ruled over the nation on God's behalf in a sense, his, rep- his representative uh, over the nation. He served the nation over pre, as a priest and also as a prophet. But one thing about Samuel that, we, that is very clear in Scripture is that he did so according to the ways of the Lord. Like he walked in obedience to the Lord. Obviously not perfectly, but his conviction was to please the Lord. His conviction was to obey the word of God. But we see this Samuel's getting older And as he becomes older, things become more difficult for him. And when you look at our passage in verse 1, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. What does this tell you? Well, we can get a hunch that as he's getting older, his physical limitations were being pushed beyond their capabilities. This was a man who judged the nation of Israel. He traveled from place to place to place doing that, doing what a governor or a ruler would do. Well, the physical demands of that job, of that office, probably became too difficult for him. And he needed to spread himself out, so to speak. So what does he do? Well, he appoints his sons as judges over Israel. So that maybe he wouldn't have to travel so much. He wouldn't have to be so, you know, stretched out so much. But the problem was that his sons didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. And this does sound very familiar from Eli's sons because they also did not walk in the ways of the Lord. And we know what happened to them because we study that in earlier chapters. But one thing that's different here is that Eli, Eli was judged by God because he did not step in to discipline his sons. We do not see that here with Samuel. It's not discussed. It's not talked about. That is not brought against him. So evidently, even though Samuel's sons did not walk in the ways of the Lord, Samuel just didn't let it happen. Samuel disciplined his sons. Samuel tried to raid them in. Whatever it was, they still did what they did. 
So we see a different result here from Eli and his whole household being judged versus basically Samuel's sons being judged and Samuel not being judged with them. In a sense, Eli was blamed for loving his sons more than the Lord. We do not see that with Samuel. Samuel loves the Lord more than he does his sons. Now, here's some important lessons that I think that we can learn from this, and these are side notes. Godliness is not a trait that is automatically passed down from person to person. I think we forget that sometimes, right? Because um, especially I think this is a trap that younger parents fall into, our parents with younger kids. Because once our kids start to grow up, we realize, we realize they're sinners just like us, right? And, and that's good for us because we, we need to realize that, but that also helps us to approach them the way they need to be approached as sinners because sometimes we hold them to a really, on a really high pedestal and we're like, oh, you're not going to be like me. But that's unfair to do that to them. Because we're, we're wanting them to be completely perfect, not make the mistakes that we made, but yet they're incapable of doing that. It's not just passed down from person to person. We need to remember that godliness is dependent on the Spirit of God. Second thing, we must not take it for granted that our kids will walk in the ways of the Lord because we raise them, and I'm going to do big air quotes right here, right. Right? My kids aren't going to turn out that way because I raised them right. Let's define what right is. I mean, because that's different for everybody. And, and sometimes as we look at our kids and we see them growing up, we're like, well, they're not going to turn out like them. They're not going to turn out like them. They're not going to turn out like them. And they turn out worse than them. And then on the flip side, on the flip side, you see these kids that are just, you're like, I don't know what's going to end up with them. I don't know how they're going to end up in life. Their future doesn't look that great. And they become Baptist pastors. I guarantee in Coral, Texas, in the 80s and 90s, as I was walking down the street, they didn't say, there goes that future Baptist pastor right there. They didn't say that at all. God does what he does. So what does that tell us as parents, This is in, as grandparents, as someone who is uh, over so, a child's life, it tells us this, we are and will always be completely dependent on the spirit of the Lord to save and to sanctify our children completely. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So that's just, again, a side note. But let's get back to the main point so I can get us going in the right direction. Instead of serving honorably before the Lord, Samuel's sons, it says here in verse 3, took bribes and perverted justice. So their sin was basically that they went after gain. They were selfish. They, they went after money. That was their idol. So that's how, that's the sin that they were involved in, and that's the idol that they were worshiping. Now, with the nation going through this before, we see how the elders of Israel began to handle this. They saw the writing on the wall. They're like, wait a second. 
I don't know if all these elders were alive when it happened or not. We don't have that information. But they knew about Eli's sons and their history. And they're seeing this being played out by Samuel. And they knew what judgment came upon them whenever Eli's sons sinned in the way that they did. So they're like, wait a second, something has to change. Uh, Samuel's getting older. His sons don't walk in his ways. We're in trouble here. What are we going to do? So they come to Samuel to discuss their plans for a solution. Notice that I said that, their plans for a solution. This was their attempt to bring the ark with them into battle as before. Because remember in chapters, what, four or five? Can't remember exactly which one it was. Yeah, four, chapter five, we see the Philistines attack them. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant like a, like a lucky token, lucky rabbit's foot. And they're like, oh, we have the Ark of the Covenant with us now. We're going to win this battle. And then they fall to the Philistines. 34,000 of their men die. Because they're like, we're going to bring this Ark of the Covenant here. We are going to get God to do what we want him to do. And it's going to be great. And in a sense, we're, we're, they're doing this all over again. The fact that they're coming to Samuel and saying, hey, look, we have a plan. We have a plan. Now, what's their plan? Well, let's talk about that. Israel's demand for a king. It says here in verse 5, it says, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And scripture tells us that this displeased Samuel. In fact, when it uses the word displeased, it means inflicted damage. It hurt him. Now, imagine this. You're faithfully serving. Group of people come, your family. If you're pastoring a church, the, the congregation comes to you, and they start off with, you're old. Right? Parents, your kids come to you. You're old. That would inflict some damage, right? What, what are they saying? They're saying you're useless. In a sense, right? You're, you're getting useless. You're not the same man you used to be. You're not the same woman you used to be. You're not dependent anymore. You're, you're becoming useless to us. The nation comes to Samuel and says, listen, you're useless. And your sons are useless. And if we don't have you and if we don't have your sons, who's going to lead us? We will be lost. So, you need to appoint somebody over us. Because we're afraid that if you die and your sons are in charge, it's going to be trouble. Or, if you die and we do not let your sons become in charge, we won't find anybody to lead us. So, this is a, a cold-hearted, faithless approach to save their own necks. Essentially, essentially they said, Samuel... You're, you're old, your kids are nothing like you, and we need someone tangible to lead us, or we will perish. Now, what I really appreciate here is Samuel's response. He takes the matter to the Lord in prayer. What a, that's, what a wonderful example for, for a pastor or for anybody. Because uh, there's always turmoil. I wish they weren't. Even in, in a church, there's always turmoil. There's always, you're having to deal with division. You're having to deal with selfishness. You're having to deal with a lot of different things. 
And I can tell you there are many times where I did not handle that the right way. I did not take it to the Lord in prayer, and I regret it every single time. And here, Samuel, it hurt him. Instead of lashing out back at them, it hurt him, but he took the matter to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord answered Samuel. This is what he said. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. You know what God's telling Samuel, it's not you, it's the office you hold. It's, it's not you. These people, they're the same way they've always been. When I, when I first chose them, they were sinful. They followed after idols. And they're still doing the same thing today. Why? Because they have a heart problem. See, Israel's demand for a king was not a wicked request in itself. Why? Because scripture even points, scripture before this even points to a day when there would be a king on Israel's throne. So the problem wasn't that, oh, we're asking for a king. The problem was that the Israelites did not trust the Lord to lead them or to appoint his own king according to his own timing. That was the problem. They did not trust the Lord. Notice what they said. They said that we want a king like all the other nations. In other words, we want a king like all the other pagan nations. All those other nations that follow after idols and pagans, that's, that's what we want. We want you to set us up like that because that looks like it's, it, it works. I'll tell you what. There are a lot of churches today that are in trouble spiritually because they keep on looking at outside influences to mimic themselves after. They look at corporations and, and they look at models that corporations follow and how to get the most people you can into your building, how to get the most people assimilated into, you know, whatever you have going on. And they're building and they're building and they're building and they're building. A lot of people are coming but are they building a church or are they building an organization? Are they building something else? The Bible is very clear. It says that it is the Lord who adds to the church. And the Bible is very clear on how we, how what we should do in order for the Lord to add to the church. The Bible says, preach the gospel. Day in, day out, when you're together, the gospel is the foundation of your teaching. You be faithful in doing that. God will do what he wants to do with adding people. So Israel's demand for a king, again, was not wicked in itself. The fact is, is that they did not trust God and they wanted to be like all the other nations. See, instead of trusting the Lord to be their king, they wanted to form for themselves a human idol to appoint over their lives and to follow. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like the Israelites in the desert. When Moses went to, when he, had, he went up to Mount Sinai, he went to go pray. And he left them and they were there all by themselves for all that time. And they're like, you know what? 
Moses is gone. He's probably dead. He's not coming back. Let's form an idol for ourselves to follow. Moses was with us. He's not there anymore. We, man, we need to follow something. They formed this golden calf. And we know what happened after that. It's, it's the same thing. It's happening again here in our text. And that's what I meant. That's what I meant earlier when I said that they were attempting to bring the ark with them on the battlefield. See, this is, this is what idolatry does to us. When we look at what the Israelites were doing here, they were trying to use God to bring about their will instead of being used by God to bring about his will. That's exactly what they were doing. They were trying to use God to bring about their will. When they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle, what were they trying to do? They were trying to win the battle. They're like, you know what? Let's bring God over here. God will give us what we want. He'll, he'll fulfill our will for us. What does that do to God? It brings God down. It's a man-centered theology. People are plagued with it. It's like, oh, I understand I worship God, God gives me what I want. Who's worshiping who if that's the case? Right, because that that leads God to worship us in a sense. He's dependent on our praise. He's dependent on the glory that we give him if we think that way. The Bible doesn't depict a God like that. So this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to bring God in in order for their will to be for, for their will to be to, to succeed instead of being used by God to bring about his will. So to reject God's will over your own is the essence of idolatry. To reject God's will over your own is the essence of idolatry. You lower God in that situation and you you raise yourself up above God. See, God has said that we must worship him first and foremost. And we must love our neighbors as ourselves. He, those are the two laws that summarize the, that summarize the uh, Ten Commandments. When we place something or someone in the place before God or our neighbor, then we commit idolatry. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me ask this question first. Does this happen often? More than we realize. A whole lot more than we realize. Does God expect us to repent every time? You better believe it. And I said better. That means, that's a more emphasis, right? You better believe it. He does. You better repent every single time. See, the sin of idolatry, in in simple terms, is frequently involving ourselves with someone or something that takes us away from obeying, worshiping, serving, resting, or trusting in the Lord. And and I can continue on and on and on. It basically is someone who takes us away from, someone or something that takes us away from the Lord. But I I purposely put these things in there because I want us to think about how we form idols very frequently in our lives, very often in our lives, and how easily they are formed. 
So an idol, again, let me do it again, because I have some, I have some points that go along with this. An idol is someone or something that takes us away from obeying, worshiping, serving, resting, or trusting in the Lord. Now, what are some outcomes from the sin of idolatry? So let's say we're struggling with worshiping an idol and we don't know it. We're like, I don't have any idols. I don't know what you're talking about, brother. I serve the Lord. I give all my heart to the Lord. I have no problem with any idols. Okay, if that is you, thankfully you are here today because I think I can help you with that. What are some outcomes from the sin of idolatry? Well, when we talk about obeying, if, if you have an idol in your life right now, this is, probably, this is probably what you're struggling with. You're routinely falling into the same habitual sin. You can't get out of this habitual sin that you have. You're, you, you, you get out, you fall back in. You get out, you fall back in. It's just like the Israelites. And the reason why you are falling back into this habitual sin is because you are struggling to obey God over your idol. You're struggling with it. Listen, you want to obey God. And in your heart of hearts, you, you want to. And maybe you set up things to try to. But oh, that polished idol just comes for you. And maybe one day, two days, three days out of the week, you're able to push it away. But nope, don't need you. But then what happens that fourth day? You give in to that idol. You're back in it. What happens the fifth day? You're back in it even deeper. Sixth day, seventh day. And by the time you know it, it's two weeks and, and you've been obeying this idol instead of obeying God. That's, that's one picture. How about worshiping? If you, struggle, if you struggle with idol worship, worshiping the Lord is superficial and shallow for you. It's superficial and shallow. Why? And because you are so tired, you are so exhausted from worshiping your idol. You don't have anything left after that. You're done. Who is this a picture of? How about, how, about, and how about people who work 80 hours a week? They have everything they need, right? They have everything they need. And it's just like money is never enough. And they work 80 hours a week, and, and it's time to go to church. And it's like, woo, I can't do it. So tired. I can't even put my clothes on, get in bed, Go and listen to the gospel being preached because I'm just spent from worshiping my work. And I use work as an example. There are a whole lot of other examples. But when we pour ourselves and pour ourselves and pour ourselves into something that does not fill us up, we're not going to be up for worshiping the Lord. It's going to be superficial. It's going to be shallow. It's going to be, Lord, here's another night. I didn't pray tonight. I didn't, or I didn't read my Bible tonight. Please forgive me. Help me. Give me the string to go on one more day. That's your worship for the day. You're done. 
Well, if not worshiping, what else is there? How about serving? You cannot convince yourself to serve the Lord. Why? Because your idol leaves you no time for it at all. There's just no time. It's like, brother, I have so much to do. My life is so full. I have no time at all to serve the Lord. See how things get mixed up? You have no sense of real pleasure, right? Because when we are serving the Lord, when we are worshiping God, when, when, when our priorities are right, the Bible talks about this joy that we ought to have. But yet there are so many Christians who walk around and there's just no joy in them. Doesn't seem like it anyway. I shouldn't say there is no joy in them, but the expression of that joy is not there. Why? Because there's real, no real sense of pleasure felt in life unless you are doing what your idol wants you to do. It's like we're here at church and it's just, some people are just halfway falling asleep. Some people, and, and I'm not just talking about today, I'm talking about every single Sunday. Some people are just lackadaisical, just going through the motion. But you get them in front of a football game, man, things change. Things are different. You get them in front of a basketball game, you get them on the boat fishing, you get them wherever. Man, things change. They become alive. It's like, boom. Right? Amen. See, this is a, we don't realize we have an, an idol problem. Because we think idolatry is, oh, it's this statue that you walk up to, you bow down to, and you pray to. No, it's more than that. It goes deeper than that. Yeah, we're not forming idols out of statues and, and worshiping them. They're being formed in our hearts. And we're giving ourselves over to them all the day long, and we do not even realize it. What about this? When it comes to trusting, you are angry, you are anxious, you are stressed, unless your idol is in charge of your life. Right? Who am I speaking to, to right now? Well, I'm speaking to those diehard Democrats and those diehard Republicans. That's who I'm speaking to right now. Unless your president is, is in office, you're just stressed out. You, you don't know what to do. Your nation is, 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 is falling to pieces. Your world is falling to pieces. Yeah, if, if you're like this, a lot of these type of people are extremely political or extremely legalistic. See, we have a problem. And I want us to realize that we have a problem. This is not, oh, let's point our finger at the world and we're free of this. No, this is, I need to, I need to look at myself first and foremost. Because even though I am a Christian, I struggle with idolatry. And we've already lined it out. Does it happen? Yes, more than we know. Number two, does God want us to repent every single time? You better believe it. 
every single time. See, this is the question. How can a people who just came out of sin, uh, came out of the sin of idolatry, fall back into it so easy? Because the human heart is radically corrupt. That's what R.C. Sproul had said. I love that term, radically corrupt. What does it mean? It means that it is corrupt to the core. It's not like, oh, it's good with just a little bit of bad stuff. No, it's corrupt to the core. It seeks to please itself over all things. This is what the Bible says about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is what Jesus said about the heart. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands do not defile a person. See, unless we find Christ and his spirit changes our hearts, we will be stiff-necked people who only want to do what is right in our own eyes. God has saved us from that. So there is this sense of us wanting to please God. We have had a change of heart, but our corruption runs so deep that even after our hearts have been changed, we struggle with forming new idols in our hearts to follow. And we have to be aware of that. We cannot just look at ourselves and say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm above that. I'm, I'm more mature than that. This is a struggle we're going to have for the rest of our lives. Why? Because we want to follow something that's tangible. Now, God, this is where it's overwhelming at times. Because if this is my message to you, it's like, man, we have no hope. But when we read the story, look at what God does to these wicked people. We see God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. See, at this point, we must be thankful for the spirit of the Lord, that he supplies all of our needs in Christ Jesus. We have to be extremely thankful because I don't know about you, but I hope I at least gave you um, some ideas to think about of where your idols are. Because that's what I was trying to do with myself. I was trying to really look at myself and say, Okay, I say I have no idol problem, but if I start to look at my life, I can identify where these different things are. And when you identify those things, it cuts you to the core. Your heart begins to hurt because you know you have sinned against God. You know that, that you are incapable yourself of pleasing God in this area. Well, when you are weak, we know that he makes us strong. And instead of casting us out of his presence For our continued idolatry, the Lord disciplines us and restores us to himself. And in that time, he is sanctifying us. That's what the Lord is doing in response to our idolatry. Notice, he's not letting it slip away. He's not letting it slip by. He's not brushing it under the rug or sweeping it under the rug. He deals with sin and when he deals with sin we suffer and we ought to but 
while we are suffering, the point of our suffering, the point of our discipline is to bring us back to him. You see, idol worship is not a small sin. It's a wicked sin to reject the creator of your life and to worship something that he created in his place. It's a wicked sin. It happens so easy for us. But thanks be to God that Jesus is the one who conquers all things for us. And through him, we are more than conquerors. Through what he has done on the cross, through his body and his blood, we can fight against idolatry. Now, very quickly, what can we do? Guarding our hearts from idolatry, what can we do? Number one, I want to answer the question, why? Why should we guard our hearts against idolatry? Because we belong to a king who rules over everything. And he says it is wrong for us to follow after any other idol. That's the first commandment, right? We, we need to have him and him only. He will not share his glory in any way. In any way. So we have the why. We have a king from above who rules over all. We must worship and serve him. Now, when we talk about guarding our, our hearts, how do we do that? Well, Number one, we walk in obedience to his word. That, that's important. We have to strive for that. We walk in the ways of the Lord and not the world. When we look at Eli's sons and we look at Samuel's sons, what they, they chose to walk in the way of the world. Not walk in the way of the word of the Lord. So this is a conscious choice for us. Who will we follow? Well, the Bible says that we have a good shepherd and he will lead us to green pastures. That's who we must follow. So to give you some, a simple application, we need to look at God's word, not as just something that's there or a guide, but it's our ultimate authority and we need to conform to it. It, it shows us where we are sinful, where we need to grow, and we need to walk in his ways. Number two, how can we guard our hearts? We need to walk by faith and not by sight. That's extremely difficult. You see, but what we, what we try to do, what the Israelites are doing here is that, man, they, are, they want a tangible leader, tangible king, someone they can see, that they can go to, they can speak to, someone who will speak back to them, someone that they can touch, because if you see that, then there is this like, I don't know, this, this sense of peace that someone is in charge and, and someone you like is in charge and they're doing a good job. We have the eternal king of glory over us. We can go speak to him. He speaks to us through his word. He cares for us like no one else does. He guards our lives. He supplies our needs. He does all this stuff. But how is this stuff received? How is it seen? It's seen by faith. And it's received by faith. Not by sight. So that's what we need to focus on. And then third, how? How can we guard our hearts from idol worship? 
we hold on to hope that God will remain faithful to the end. Listen, read the Bible front to, to back. One thing you will see is that God is faithful. Throughout scripture, God is faithful. He does not change. He has shown himself to be faithful even when his people are faithless. Praise the Lord that, that, that he gives that to us. I want to close with the reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We talked about this on Wednesday a little bit for, during the Bible study. This is what Paul says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now he's speaking about idol worship here. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, idol worship is not something that we should just make part of our daily lives. We need to seek and we need to destroy it. So whatever idol you have built up for yourself, seek it and destroy it. See, either we walk in his ways and he helps us to endure the temptation of idolatry or we walk in the ways of the world and he gives us over to our idols. This is your question for today. What will I choose? Right? You're, this, that, that's your question today and every day. Who will I follow? What will I choose? Let's pray.